Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the latest episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I am especially excited about this episode for two reasons. Number one, we're talking about one of my all-time favorite movies, The Thin Red Line, directed by Terrence Malick. And even more important, we have one of our special guests back that uh, we're excited about, and I know you're going to be excited about, and that is Mr. Russ Hudson. Russ, how are you? I'm doing great, Mario. Having a good morning here. And uh, yeah, I'm a fellow huge fan of this film. So really looking forward to this. Great, great. So thanks for being here again. So our listeners, of course, um, you know, have uh, heard Russ on the on the episodes before. We'll talk about Russ in a, in a few moments uh, about your real quick bio and where people can get more information about you. But first, let me introduce, uh, as always, the TJs, TJ Daw and TJ Ingracia. Fellas, how are you guys doing today? And are you excited about today's episode as I am? I'm excited to just shut up and listen for the most part today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to explore this because it's such an unusual film. Yeah. So this takes the viewer and I'm sure it will take us in places that most movies, war movies or otherwise, generally don't. For sure. All right. So for uh, for those listeners who may have been living under a rock for the last 20 years or so, Russ Hudson is one of the you know premier Enneagram teachers uh, uh, in the Enneagram world. Um, the, you know, uh, Russ has been teaching the Enneagram for years and years and years. Uh, co-founded the Enneagram Institute with Don Riso. How long ago was that, Russ? Oh, sheesh! I started working with Don 1991. 1991. Okay, and uh, uh, and uh, since then has been teaching the Enneagram all over the world to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Written what five books or co-authored with Don five books? Yeah, or? I co-authored five books with Don, and I've done one uh, audio book with Sounds True since then. That they're we're in communication about turning it into a book. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm proud to call Russ one of my teachers and uh, one of my friends, and uh, always great to have you with us. Russ, where can people find out more information about you? Uh, easiest place would be uh, www.russhudson.com. Pretty easy. Uh, you know, just my name, .com. Perfect. Perfect. Thanks, Russ. Uh, and again, we're, we're, we're uh, happy to have you talking about this movie because, as T.J. Daw said, this isn't kind of a typical movie. And for my mind, what's uh, most interesting about this movie is not so much the Enneagram types portrayed in it, but the Enneagram themes, uh, which I would call the higher Enneagram themes uh, at play here. So uh, I got to choose this movie. You might remember that we're do, you know we're doing sort of some employee picks, and uh, this was one of my picks uh, primarily because I just love the movie so darn much, you know, and wanted to have the opportunity to watch it. Um, so I'm going to ask you guys kind of your uh, general reactions to the movie, uh, general thoughts about it, and and let's start with Russ. So Russ, tell us about your feelings slash relationship with this movie well i first saw this movie when it very first came out i i probably saw it in the first couple of days of its release and that would have been 
1998, and it was the winter 98-99. I remember that. Uh, I went to see it with Don Riso, who was very curious to see it too. And we were so moved. It moved on to tears several times. And I came away from it thinking it was one of the most extraordinary films I'd ever seen. It was striking both in its utter transcendence of some of the rules of cinema. You know, it's not really a character narrative driven film in the usual way. Yet you get so involved and care about these individuals, even as they're just on the screen a short time. But as you were saying, I also felt that it tackled some of the more existential themes of human existence in a way that seldom happens in Hollywood movies. And, you know, Terrence Malick has a has quite a track record, or he had one, uh, and we'll get into all of that, I'm sure. But I remember just being moved to my toes, and I went to see it several times. I wanted to make sure I was seeing what I was seeing, you know, but it, yeah. but it was so moving. Yeah, I, I I remember I saw this movie on opening day. I was extremely excited to see it. And as I also later did with Tree of Life, I didn't leave the theater. I sat and watched it again. I, I enjoyed yeah. it so much, uh, which was a long time because this is a long movie, right? Back to back. <laughs> yeah, back to back. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's almost three no. hours. And I, I sat there and I just said, I, I need to sit through this again and uh, did. so. It's, uh, it's but, probably worth saying too, Mario, there are yeah. a lot of parallels between those two films, between For The sure. Thin Red Line and, and uh, The Tree of Life. For sure. For sure. Um, so TJ and TJ, um, let's see. Uh, first, let me hear from TJ and Gracia, our youngster of the group here. So TJ, tell us about your reaction to the movie. Well, this was the first time I'd seen it, watching it for this uh, podcast. And it was it's an experience for sure. I mean, like Russ said, it's not a narrative, character-driven film in the classic sense, but you do get attached to the characters. Um, I feel like I'm still, you know, you guys have had sort of like decades of advantage <laughs> on me to process and think through. I feel like I'm still processing, you know, trying to figure out like depths that are maybe I'm not even understanding or because I know there was some also some critical um, reviews of it that are like, man, this is really philosophical and high minded and kind of convoluted in places. So just trying to untangle the you know the the brilliance from the mess or or whatever <laughs> right right and there were you know i was surprised that the rotten tomatoes score was only 80 percent and i know that roger ebert only gave it three out of four stars uh so there were some people who found it a bit jumbled a bit you know um not as coherent as it could be uh, but i i didn't find that distracting so uh, yeah uh tj Daw, how about you yeah, and just to mention something else, when this movie came out, I was on a children's theater tour that lasted nine months, and one of my tour mates had seen the Dennis Miller talk show, which existed for just a few years in the 90s, in which in his opening monologue, Dennis Miller eviscerated this movie. Oh, really? He was kind of going through what all the Best Picture nominees were that year, and he hated the film, found it unbelievably pretentious and opaque. Uh, so that was curious to me. I encountered... Terrence Malick's work when I was a college student and I saw a documentary that I've referenced before on this podcast called Visions of Light, the Art of Cinematography. And that ended up being a viewing guide for me of a number of movies, some of which were very well known, like Jaws or Taxi Driver or The Godfather, some of which were lesser known, like McCabe and Mrs. Miller or Days of Heaven, but where there's prominent cinematography in it. And they, they looked at Days of Heaven, which at the time was a movie I'd never even heard of. It wasn't a box office hit in any way at all. 
And the cinematographer talked about how a lot of the film was shot during the magic hour. He said, which is a euphemism. It's more like 20 minutes, but it's when the sun has set, but there's still light in the sky. So they would spend the entire day setting up a shot and have about 12, 20 minutes of useful filming time. But in the end, he said it was worth it because the movie is extraordinarily beautiful. And he also said that he believes, and this is the cinematographer, not Terrence Malick, but he believes that in film, dialogue should have about the same prominence as music, that film should be told primarily visually. And it's not surprising that a cinematographer would think that. But anyway, Days of Heaven stayed with me in a really big way. And I just adored it. And I watched it a number of times. And it just seemed such a statement of beauty. And even though it did have a story, the focus wasn't on the story. So when Thin Red Line came out, I was very excited to see it. It wasn't easy for me to see it because I was on a children's theater tour, which primarily was in small towns. So I don't know that I saw it on the big screen at the time. I might've had to wait until it came out on video, but when it came out, I just loved it and thought it was extraordinary. Hadn't watched it again until watching it in preparation for this. And it just hit me in the heart and moved me to tears. I just found it so incredibly sad, which is extraordinary for a war movie because many war movies have the theme that war is hell. But usually that theme comes across in terms of just how chaotic and violent it is. And this movie has that too, but it didn't have this, this extra layer of profound depth and beauty and sadness. And we'll get to this when we tease apart what the different themes are, but uh, the preciousness and eternal nature of life on this planet. And and that's what this movie is about, right? I mean, it's it's a war movie, but it's not about war of country against country. It's against it's about the war of nature against itself and humans against themselves, right? These competing impulses and drives. Um and I almost, as I was watching it, started thinking of it as sort of a Manichaean effort, right? Good versus evil, you know, uh, right and wrong, et cetera. But then realized it's not that. It is just two elements of nature warring against each other without animosity, without evil and good, but just difference bumping up against each other and war as a representation of that. So uh, anyway, so there's a lot, a lot, a lot here. And I don't want to get ahead of us uh, in getting into the uh, uh, themes of the movie, but um, uh, and, and any other uh, introductory comments before uh, I give a plot summary? I've had retreats where I used this film to show people the law of three. Because it's exactly as you're saying, Mario, you're, you're seeing conflict through the whole thing, nature and man against man and nature against nature. At the same time, through the music, through the cinematography, as, as you were seeing, TJ, it's showing there's something else there holding all of it. And I think it's a correct idea that transcendence includes the conflict. And how do we live with that? And that's so much for me what this film is about, that there's always going to be conflict and difficulty. It's right there in nature, but that there's something else here too. And I love the fact in the movie that he doesn't hit you over the head and tell you what it is or what you should think about that. Yeah. Uh, one uh, sort of final uh, observation about uh, the movie is that it's, for me, it's, it's, this and Tree of Life is Malik at his peak, right? Uh, I love Badlands. I love Days of Heaven. They felt like 
in retrospect, they almost felt like practice runs up to the thin red line, right? Uh, Badlands is much more linear and character-driven. The Days of Heaven is more elliptical and uh, visually oriented. And those things kind of came together in a way where Malick is starting to say, you know, let me abandon this whole thing of plot and, you know, uh, but still make it fairly coherent. I think Tree of Life, which, again, one of my favorite movies, less coherent than the thin red line right less even less linear and then after that it started going all over the place right um you know i kind of gave up on anything resembling a plot after that i think but anyway so i set that up because as i go to give the plot summary um plot is a loose word here right so the Thin Red Line is director Terrence Malick's 1998 interpretation of James Jones's World War II novel of the same name. Focusing on the lives of the men in C Company, it's a sprawling story centered on the battle for Guadalcanal with numerous characters and storylines combining gut-punch battle scenes with philosophical musings on the battle of forces in nature and how they're reflected in human nature. After a foreboding opening scene of an alligator sinking into a swamp accompanied by the sound of shrieking birds, we're transported to an Eden-like island in the South Pacific where an AWOL private wit, played by Jim Caviezel, is hiding among the villagers. He's discovered and imprisoned, but Sergeant Welsh, played by Sean Penn, shows him the kindness of assigning him to a stretcher-bearer unit instead of to prison. Uh, the company lands on Guadalcanal unopposed. They march into the interior of the island, and along the way they encounter natives and evidence of the ongoing Japanese presence. The company soon finds their objective, Hill 210, a key enemy position. The Japanese have placed bunkers at the top of the hill, and anyone attempting to climb will be cut down by machine gun fire. The attack commences at dawn the next day. Charlie Company storms up the hill but are immediately repelled by heavy machine gun fire. By radio, Lieutenant Colonel Tall, played by Nick Nolte, orders Captain Staros, played by Elias Cotias, to capture the bunker by frontal assault at whatever cost. Staros resists, stating that he will not commit his men to what he sees as a suicide mission. Meanwhile, um, Private Bell leads a small troop to covertly scout the summit of the hill by himself and assess the Japanese stronghold. Furious at Staros's refusal to obey his command, Tall ventures up to Charlie Company's position, accompanied by his Italian XO, Captain John Gaff, played by John Kuzak. When they arrive, they find that the Japanese resistance seems to have lessened, and Tall's opinion of Staros is sealed. Tall suggests a small detachment of men to perform a flanking maneuver to capture it. Captain Gaff is given command of the detachment, and they proceed up the hill toward the Japanese camp. A pitched battle ensues, but ultimately the American forces are victorious and the hill is captured. For their efforts, the men are given a week's leave, though they find little joy in the respite in the fighting. While the company is bivouacked, Staros is relieved of his command by Tall. Weeks later, the company is sent on patrol up a river under the command of the inexperienced lieutenant band. As Japanese artillery fire falls close to their positions and with communications severed, band orders Corporal Fife and Private Coombs to scout up river. 
Wit, sensing danger, volunteers to go along. The three men encounter an advancing Japanese column, but as they attempt to retreat back to the company, they are fired upon and Coombs is wounded. In order to buy time for Fife to get back to inform the rest of the unit, Wit draws away the Japanese but is encircled by one of their squads who demand that he surrender. Despite this, Wit raises his rifle to provoke them and is killed. After Wit's body is recovered and buried by his squad mates, the company receives a new commander, Captain Bosch. They are subsequently relieved of duty and board a waiting LCT, which evacuates them from Guadalcanal. Okay, but that doesn't capture the half of it, right? Uh, you know, you know, reading a plot summary of this is kind of to miss the point. Um, so, guys, um, boy, it's it's almost tough to, to to go about how to do this. You know what I'm curious about is for you rate this among your where does it stand among your favorite war movies anybody have any thoughts on that what other movies would you put it up against or compare it to well it seems kind of strange to even describe it as a war movie it's like it transcends the category like it's but at the same time it has many of the conventions of a war movie there are pitched battle scenes there are the variety of soldiers there's the hierarchy of the army it is based on true events so it is that but it's also not that. So to answer your question, high, very high. But at the same time, <laughs> it's not like it lives in that bucket in my mind of like, what's a good war movie? I really feel like watching a good war movie tonight. I know, The Thin Red Line. Yeah, you, it's a different mood, isn't it? It's off, It's interesting. You know, When it was released, it came out about five or six months after Saving Private Ryan, which was Spielberg's big war movie. And quite revolutionary in its way. But thematically, the two films could not be more different. I think they're both excellent movies, but they're really different. Um, I was reading an essay about this where the author was talking about how at that particular time, the late 90s, um, it was Tom Brokaw wrote The Greatest Generation and you had Spielberg coming out with this and it was a sort of restoration of the whole idea of the good war. Yeah, And it was like, yeah, there's some wars that are worth fighting, and that was definitely one. And here's the heroism of the, the guys who went and fought this objective evil of Nazism. And, uh, but here, you don't get that. Yeah. Um, you know, Malik kind of came up in the 70s, as you were just talking about, in that generation of filmmakers who were, were just coming out of the Vietnam War. And so there was a very different feeling about war and its involvement. Even so, I would not say that this is a war movie or an anti-war movie. I would not say either. It's got, it's, they've, Malik had bigger fish to fry. And I always say, yes, it's a film that takes place during a war, but it's not a movie particularly about the realities of combat. It's, it's not about that. But I would say, to answer your question, if I were to put it with other war movies, it's probably my favorite. Um, but I I would echo what you just said, TJ. It's not a war movie in any typical sense. There are people I know who won't see a war movie, but I would encourage them that you might give this one a try and you'll understand why if you watch it. TJ and Grassi, any thoughts on that? Uh, not much to add. Just to, it's interesting juxtaposing it against Private Ryan, which came out just a few months before, 
and how neither of them, I, I remember whatever year it was that Private Ryan didn't win the best picture, uh, Shakespeare in Love won best picture that year. And my grandfather was furious about that. He was so angry. And, uh, and it's interesting that this picture, uh, it was nominated for seven Academy Awards and it didn't win. It was the only best picture nominee that year that didn't win anything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, Private Ryan is hard to beat for me, but yeah. like you, you've all said, this isn't really a typical war movie. So it's yeah. hard. It's kind of apples and oranges, you yeah. know, it's like, it takes place during a war, but it really has almost nothing to yeah. do about that when you get to the heart of it. Yeah. And, and at the same time, well, I, I completely agree with that, right? This is a movie that just so happens to be set during a war, right? As an opportunity to explore themes, I would suggest. And... There was a self-consciousness to it because there are some interesting allusions to other war movies, right? I mean, there's the uh, uh, the, the refusal to take orders from, uh, say, Paths of Glory, right? Uh, the, yes. you know, the Kubrick movie. There is John Savage as the raving person who kind of lost his mind, you know, during the battle, which is a callback to the, the deer hunter. Right, and there's that. There's a scene where uh, Nick Nolte's uh, Colonel Tall, Tall, um, doesn't flinch when a mortar round goes off right next to him, which was an Apocalypse Now reference, right? So, so even though Malick was not making a war movie, he was clearly conscious of war movies as he was constructing this, right? So, um, yeah. One thing I noticed about it, very interesting. Uh, what was powerful about Saving Private Ryan? was it put you in the position of being one of the soldiers in that situation. It wasn't, there was no distance. You were on the LTD and, and opening the thing and the machine gun fire, and you were right there in a way that no war movie had ever really done. And it was so overwhelming and terrifying, and you really got a sense of what those soldiers went through. I actually watched Saving Private Ryan with my... Um, the, a man who was my sister's father-in-law at the time, he was on Omaha Beach. Oh, wow. He was there. And so we watched it together, and he was just tears. And he said, I said, what you think? He said, very accurate. But it was very much putting you in the subjectivity of it. Apocalypse Now was kind of like that, but showing the madness of it all, that war is insane. It's part of our insanity. But Thin Red Line is putting us in a kind of more transcendental perspective on the whole thing. Like even in the most pitched battle scenes where they're taking the hill and they're, they're bayoneting Japanese and the, and it's, it's, there's this, and the swelling of the music and everything. You're just looking at it all as this enormous human tragedy. And you're not looking at it from any of the usual war movie perspectives. And it was very unique that way. And, and you never forget those scenes once you've seen them. Yeah, Saving Private Ryan, the opening and closing shot is a great big slowly flapping American flag. So that frames the tone of that movie quite deliberately of like, this is a movie about the just war that America fought, about the heroism, about the sacrifice. And this isn't that. And it's interesting, uh, Japanese people have been easier to villainize. For white people. I remember this British performer who once talked about how when the Allies gathered after the end of World War II, the big question was not what are we going to do with the Germans, but what are we going to do with the Japanese? How can we live on in a world that contains these absolute fiends? 
And we don't see this story from the Japanese perspective too much. It's not like uh, Clint Eastwood did that, did two movies about Iwo Jima, one from the American pr- perspective, one from the Japanese perspective, which was really interesting. But what I found with this movie is when we do see the Japanese, they're not presented as savages. They're exhausted. They're terrified. They're racked with trauma. The hellish experience has been horrible for them as well, even though many of them were in a machine gun nest unseen by us for most of the movie. Yeah. And even uh, I think one of the most uh, tender moments or most moving moments came from the perspective of a a dead Japanese soldier buried in the ground where uh, Jim Caviezel's uh, private wit is looking down at this face. And the voiceover says, are you righteous, kind? Does your confidence lie in this? Are you loved by all? Know that I was too. Do you imagine your sufferings will be any less because you loved goodness and truth? Um, a, a short poem that took me back to our Birdman episode with the Raven I was Carver, just thinking that. Man, right? that sounds so, familiar. <laughs> exactly right, right? So there's this, this same sort of theme here. So so you're right, TJ. There, there was not this demonization of the other that we see in so many movies. And, um, and, and, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about this movie because, again, it's, it's a, a, a war of the two sides of nature in a, in, a, in a broader sense and human nature, but one that doesn't vilify either side. Even the relationship between Jim Caviezel's wit and uh, Sean Penn's Welsh could be there could be tremendous hostility in that because their worldviews are so different, but there's this kindness and compassion that they have toward each other that really captures this theme. There's that humanity and it kind of flickers out and it flickers. One of the most also heartbreaking, affecting scenes. And I, I love that scene with the dead soldier. I just, that just made me cry at the time. You know, it was so powerful and poignant. But another one is when right after the battle, when one of the soldiers is going around removing the gold teeth yes. of the dead Japanese soldiers, and that really happened in World War II. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they were, t- and he, there's another Japanese soldier. He's just waiting for him to die so he can get the teeth. There was, it's touched very lightly on this truth that you would not have imagined American soldiers doing that to Germans. Wouldn't right. have happened. Right. There was a lot of racism in that yeah. war, and the Japanese were seen as some kind of subhumans even in the war yeah. and treated as such but the, but i think the way he handles it seeing this awful sort of ghastly thing that the soldier's doing and later on there's the scene where it's raining and mm-hmm. and it's the rain is symbolic it's like there's a purgation happening and the soldiers have all been partying and they're drunk and now they're kind of hung over and miserable and the guy who did those teeth is just weeping and screaming and throws the teeth yes. away and yeah. this moment of what Gurdjieff would have called conscience mm. what the yeah. what the turning of the heart like i can't keep doing this yeah there's yeah. a lot of themes in this and i'm sure we'll get into this about how we occasionally pop out of these this realm of conflict of the yes and no of the yeah. good and bad the right and wrong yeah great so um couple more comments here. Again, Terrence Malick, as we said, had, um, I think we mentioned this, but he had gone on hiatus after making 
Days of Heaven for 20 years. He was working on a script for a lot of time. He did take some work as a script writer, but he basically um, uh, moved to Paris, was living there as, a, as an artist, you know, painting and doing some other things. So when he announced that he was coming back to do this movie, Every actor in Hollywood wanted to be part of this. I mean, if you look at the credits of this movie, I mean, this was in the late 1990s, and some of the biggest stars of the time, um, you, you know, um, um, uh, George Clooney, for example, has about a, a two-minute cameo in it. John Travolta, who was very big, during this time was not long after Pulp Fiction and, you know, some other things that he was doing uh, was in it. Bruce Willis tried to be in it and even offered to work for free and pick up some of the expenses of flying crew around in order to be in it. And this movie is just a who's who of Hollywood uh, at the time. Uh, thoughts about the casting, guys? Any observations? Any Anything come to mind on that? Yeah, there was there was a lot of criticism about how the the characters in the film had a certain similarity, Private Bell and 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 Wit. They kind of look yes. alike. Yes. And there there's, but I think that was intentional. I think we're meant not to see these people as individual hermetically sealed identities moving against a static background. But there's a certain fluidity. And I think the reason for the casting that way and not dwelling a long time on any single character was meant to put us into this framework of how we're all kind of connected in all of this. There's a lot of point nine themes in this movie. Yeah. A lot of point nine themes. Yeah. And that was one way that we should have brought into that through the casting. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. And certainly we're going to come back to those themes in a moment. Um, to... to, to, to Follow up on a point you made there, Russ, this this um, uh, familiarity of people, right? Uh, meaning, I feel like I know you, right? There was even a voiceover at the end of the movie by Train, Private Train, who has a very little part in the, a very small part in the film, but does a lot of the voiceover. And he says, where is it that we were together? Who were you that I lived with, walked with? the brother, the friend, darkness and light, strife and love, are they the workings of one mind, the features of the same face? Oh, my soul, let me be in you now. Look out through my eyes. Look out at the things you made, all things shining. But again, it's this idea that, you know, we're all sort of one thing. Uh, yeah, the, the very classic view of transcendentalism, uh, if you want to look at it philosophically, or the essentially the mystical punchline of all spiritual traditions. The other thing I was just reflecting on with that, in terms of the casting, since you asked about that, when George Clooney, who you mentioned, does appear in this <laughs> yeah. kind of three-ish way, <laughs> yeah, right. and he hasn't been there with them, and he it, the whole thing strikes you as kind of weirdly artificial. He sticks out in that film, but it's it's be and but I think we're meant to feel how we've been in it with these these guys and they've been in it together and they're seeing reality through different eyes, just like is said in that last voiceover. But they're looking at this guy who has not been through that initiation with them. He doesn't know what they know, even though he's their leader. And it's a weird thing again about how what's in charge doesn't get it, this deeper truth that we're wrestling with. 
I'm sure Malik felt that with his Hollywood superiors too. <laughs> right. Yeah, and Sean Penn's voiceover through that scene with Clooney reinforces that. He says, Everything's a lie, everything you hear, so much to spew out, they just keep coming. And he's he's basically yeah. saying that. Like enough with these people who act like they know what's going on when we've been in it. Uh, yeah. So one other, one final point on the casting. Um, famously, Adrian Brody was supposed to be the star of this movie. He was supposed to be the main character. Now, I read some things that made me think that that might have been Adrian Brody's story rather than the reality. Although I'm not so sure about that, but that is one of the famous things. He was this was supposed to be his big break, and he ended up being a very minor character who I think has two or three lines uh, towards the end of the movie. And also one of the other than the Sean Penn character, I would say, all the, and and probably Nick Nolte too. But all the most important most prominent characters were very little known and all the big names all the big stars the travoltas the clooneys and so forth had very small and insignificant points which i i thought was fascinating without getting into so let's talk about enneagram types on display here okay and so i think there are a couple that come to my mind but um any thoughts russ i'm going to go to you what do you think was the best enneagram type depiction of a character in the movie well i i think one of the places where enneagram type kind of sticks out a lot is in the dialogue between uh jim caviezel and and uh sean penn and wit to me is kind of holding the position of the nine. He doesn't want to deal with this. He doesn't like the conflict. He runs off to live with the natives. And there's a journey, his journey of seeing how that deeper kind of sense of unity that's the centerpiece of nine, how that actually works in the physical world of conflict and challenge and his self sacrifice in the end, too. But I see Sean Penn's character as a six. Oh, interesting. And mm -hmm. he's fascinated by his own doubt, his pessimism, his cynicism. And here's this guy, and he's and there's several of their dialogues in it where he's trying to understand how can you look at it that way? You this really doesn't get to you like it gets to me. And at the same time, he feels kind of protective toward him. So you could read that as a six or an eight. You could read that as either, but clearly coming from one of those two points. And But again, I love, as you mentioned, Mario, it, I like that they didn't go where you'd expect. Yeah. Where there, there's a kind of struggle of the two of them to understand and appreciate each other and where they're coming from. Yeah. You get that more from Sean Penn toward Jim Caviezel, but you get that Jim Caviezel's try, getting the goodness in Sean Penn, too. And there's that really heartbreaking uh, voiceover of Sean Penn toward the end where he just makes an oath of how he's going to live differently because of the experience of what he's seen and what he learned from wit. Six, six goes to nine, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. TJ or TJ, Enneagram depictions that you would comment on? Enneagram type depictions. Yeah, my thought on Wit was the same. He really came off quite nine-ish to me. In those early scenes, I mean, it's the opening of the movie. It's him with the villagers. And they're living in a traditional way where I would imagine they've lived for thousands of years. And he's playing with the children or he's observing them. And he's doing so in a very gentle way. And I saw that as a lot of, you know, famously nines do a lot of recharging in nature. 
and don't see themselves as better than other people. So even though he's from theoretically a much more quote unquote advanced civilization, he doesn't think of himself as better than them. He escapes the army to go hide out with these villagers. And he doesn't really fight when he gets back. There's, there's a real lack of anger in him, even though you know, it's established that he went AWOL you know, several times. And even in his dialogue with Welsh, he doesn't seem to have ill will toward him. And then later when you know, he's talking with another prisoner, the other guy says, he hates you worse than poison. And he responds, I never felt he hated me because I don't hate him. Right. I had one other thing about Whip and the Nineness is there is this process of him becoming disillusioned with his idea that this transcendent place is some place he's got to get away to. When he's sitting there after the battle and he's just looking at all the got the soldiers partying, he just starts weeping at just their humanity, their rawness, their just the whole enormity of the whole thing and when he goes back to the village and it's completely changed and it isn't paradise and the villagers are fighting and they're they're suspicious of them and it's a whole different thing it's it's sort of i think that part of the thing is is that inner nine and in all of us we've got to go through that disillusionment to get to what that nine place really is not what we project it to be which i thought was absolutely brilliant i you seldom see themes like that in a movie yeah, that's where I landed as well. Um, Russ, knowing you were going to be on, I was looking in particular at the levels of development through some of these characters just to kind of see what what stood out. And it was interesting at the very healthiest levels of Type 9, uh, self-possessed, feeling autonomous and fulfilled, paradoxically at one with self and thus able to form more profound relationships, um, having a healing and calming influence, harmonizing groups and bringing people together. You know, the, One of the first notes that I wrote for him was angel of death he seems to be there in these moments of i forget woody harrelson's uh, character's name but when he's dying uh towards the end when they're in the river with coombs when he's shot and he's probably going to die he's he's there almost to help these characters transition in into their death and to calm them through it uh and then mario one of the things you wrote in the enneagram guidebook is the chief asset of the nine being balance uh, having a capacity to remain immovable, solid, and unfazed by the changes of life. They can make people feel safe and have a calming, anxiety-reducing effect on others. And that feels like that's a wit all the way through. Yeah, it's it's like understand nine on the triad in the in the Enneagram symbol represents the reconciling force, or what Gurdjieff called the reconciling force. And that was sort of hit on by Helen Palmer and others as the mediating skill of nines but i think it goes beyond that and i think you're on to something there tj that he represents in some way the possibility of the continuity and the deeper unity between what seems to us transcendent and what is necessary in terms of us living in a manifested world full of contradictions polarities conflicts that you can't leave that behind in a sense. But he becomes that sort of conduit. He's there. It, it, as it, he, that's the, his journey. By the end of that film, he's really there full on. He's not trying to get away from anything. And in that, he becomes this sort of conduit of grace to, in a certain sense, as, as you're pointing out. In, even to the point of giving up his own life. Yeah, so I was just going to ask. I'm curious what you guys think about 
the last shot of him raising his rifle, you know, he's surrounded, he raises his rifle, they shoot him dead. What is that about? Why does he do <laughs> so, that? Help me understand how this fits in with all of what we're talking about. Well, this this touches on something actually. I just wanted to bring up, so I'm going to jump in here. Um, there, so Malik is very much a Christian thinker, right? I mean, the, his wrestling with his faith uh, is something that appears in all of his movies. It's it's the it's the theme that drives him, and in particular. It's how do we live as a Christian when we speak to God and he does not answer, right? And so that's what this whole movie is about, right, as are some of his other films. And look, the Jim Caviezel character, ironically, is a stand-in for Jesus in my view here. And I say ironically because he famously went on to portray Jesus in the— in. Uh, in what Christopher Hitchens called the homoerotic snuff flick uh, called The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Anything Christopher Hitchens says, I'm good with. Yeah, okay, good. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so he famously went on to play Jesus in, in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Um, but, yeah, it, look, it's, you, you know, there are just Christian themes of sacrifice, grace, uh, salvation, resurrection, baptism right the the water scenes right i mean this movie is just rife with that and my interpretation of that last part is he was sacrificing himself for his fellow man right to save uh, the rest of his people right uh, had he been captured it may not you know there wouldn't have been the gunshot that would have alerted uh, people and so that that's my view on it uh, other thoughts well he also didn't he didn't pull his trigger it wasn't one of those deaths that you have seen in other movies where somebody goes down screaming, I'm going down and I'm going to take as many of you assholes down with me as I can. It was more like, I've got a role to play and I'm going to play it. I'm going to give you permission to kill me. Yeah. And he had no intention of killing any more people. I don't think at that point in the film. Uh, yeah. I was, I was just thinking back to what you're saying. I, I agree with you, Mario. I, I do see him as a sort of a Christic figure. But there's there's other elements in it, and I just really agree with you also about Malik's wrestling with this, much like Martin Scorsese, as we right. were talking about exactly. earlier. Yeah. They're both wrestling with these issues of faith. But his what he comes to, I think some of the most, for me, the scenes of that film that stick with me and are with me today are not the plot moments. It's like when the soldiers are, have started to charge the hill and they're laying in that tall grass and there's bullets whizzing over their head. But you look up and the sunlight is streaming down through the forest canopy and there are exotic birds up there completely untouched by the battle. It's just this imminence of another level of reality that's right there, but it does not... It does not excuse you from participation in the situation that you're in. They're still in a battle, and yet this is sitting right there, right with them. I always find that extraordinary. And again, very much about the nine, the point nine dimension. I had a question, though, for you guys. Uh, Bell, the Ben Chapman character, right? What do you think he was? I, and I, want, I have one other question. I'm trying to remember, did he volunteer to go up the hill after he got the letter from it was his, before. It was before. It was before. Yeah. Right. I was wondering. That would make a difference. Yes. And and my my memory was it was before. 
but I just was thinking about that seems significant to me that he, he's just there's in the film this character he's he's very much a romantic he's in love with this woman they show you scenes of her back in I presume California or somewhere on the west coast and he's just living for her and he's writing her letters and she's writing him letters and he's he volunteers to do this very dangerous mission where he's very likely to be killed but he survives and as after he survives he finds out the woman sends him a dear john letter i've met somebody else i've met another guy i just wondered what he he that was a very important theme through the film too almost independently of everything else and yet not but i just wondered what you what your thoughts were about his enneagram point or what he represented in the whole mix I'm going to leave this to the two TJs because Russ shared with me his thoughts and I agree with them. So uh, the, go ahead, TJ and TJ. Any thoughts? No, I have I have absolutely no idea. So I was hoping to hear from you guys on this. <laughs> TJ, you're the last man standing. All right. I didn't have a super strong beat on him. Like, I don't think he stands as a shining example of a given type. But thinking about it, my best guess would probably be four in that his scenes, his reminiscences about his wife are unique in the film. Well, not quite. I mean, we get backstory about a couple of characters, but his are a repeated motif throughout the film. And that's him. That's the strength that he draws. That's, that's what stays with him. No matter what is his memory of this. And then he expresses himself very poetically. Mind you, that's hardly unique to him as a character. Every single character does. And I think that has more to do with Terrence Malick than about who the individual characters are. I think that's a, I think there's a very forish theme in the film is that there's depth and beauty in every single person, regardless of the fact that many of them look alike, that they're dressed alike, that they have to do the same thing. If you look into the heart and mind of each person, you will find layers and layers and layers. The layers of him that we see are of romantic love. So that could indicate the possibility of a two, but he didn't seem demonstrative about his love to me. It was more like this is this source of beauty for me that keeps me going. Something that I have that I can revisit and relish the deliciousness of no matter where I am and no matter what's happening. Well, you know, watching it again more recently, I, I, I will find it difficult to pin him down to a single type. I mean, he could just as easily be a three who's, who's doing all this performative stuff with this idea of this is what he's going to be this hero for his beloved, this uh, woman is far away who, by the way, she was uh, the prominent. Uh, that was, I think, the first time I ever saw the actress. Miranda is her name. Uh, and she was also an important character in Lord of the Rings. Trilogy. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, okay. she was. Yeah, she was the, the sword maiden who fell in love uh, with Aragorn. Lady Eowyn. Yes. Yes, that's right. Uh, in any case, Miranda Otto, that's her name. I see him as holding, the, representing the heart center. If you think about it, wit, there's a heart there, but he's the nine. He's the beingness. He's the, the, and then you've got Sean Penn, who's the cynic, the questions, the struggling with it all, the head center. And in a certain way, he's bringing us some of the themes to the heart center. Like he's, he, he's in this battle and war and everything. And what's his mind on? It's on this love relationship. And, and everything kind of rises and falls. But like wit, he has to go through this initiation of complete disillusionment. And it's interesting that although he's heartbroken it, and, and devastated, he goes on. He's not destroyed by that. 
but he becomes a different kind of person. Uh, there's something about in this film, I've never quite said this before, it's, it's sort of like innocence is the virtue of eight. What that is, is not what we think it is. It's not wit at the beginning of the film, it's wit at the end of the film. And there's this, there's a certain part about the theme of how we have to lose our kind of false innocence to arrive at this other kind of true humanity, this true integration of what we are on different levels. And I think that's what moved me so much about the film, because as I said, how many movies do you see working with these kind of themes? It's a short list. Yeah. So uh, I've been thinking about the Sean Penn character, and I have to say, first, a couple of things. Number one, other than wit, I don't think any of the characters are really clearly, clearly, absolutely defined Enneagram types, okay? Uh, it's just not the nature of the movie. And I have a hard time seeing Sean Penn in almost anything other than maybe Fast Times at Ridgemont High, as anything other than as anything other than an eight, right? Or, I mean, Corlito's I often, way. Or, or, well, Corlito's way is another one, right? Where he was not an eight, yeah. So, but in you know, for me, and I think Sean Penn is an eight in yeah. real life, and uh, so I did see that character as kind of an eight. Although I hear what you're saying about the six, Russ, and it, it got me to thinking about both him and Nulty's uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tall of you know, are these guys sixes or eights? And do even eights look a little bit six-ish in battle, right? I mean, you know, because we, yeah, you know, we like to think everybody's going to be John Wayne, you know, when it comes to battle. But the reality is even eights get scared and feel doubtful and, you know, when somebody's shooting guns at them and that sort of thing, right? And um, so uh, for me, this point you made about innocence, which I had not thought of, I kind of see the Sean Penn character going through that in a way through this movie, right? I mean, it's this, you know, he's wrestling with, he's cynical in the things that he's saying, but he's clearly feeling the pain that he is denying. He's clearly wrestling with that. And he even says to John C. Riley's character, I envy you guys who don't feel anything. I haven't gotten there yet. And at the end, there's this tenderness toward wit as he's you know wrapping the dog tags around the his uh, rifle at his uh, uh, grave marking uh, that I think are, are on the road to that innocence he's not there yet but that seems to me to be the struggle that he's, he's uh, uh, engaged with in a way. you know even the Nick Nolte character is has elements of that and I would definitely yeah. think of him more as an eight than a six in this film and he, he yeah. doesn't want to have to make these tough fast decisions but he does them and he must. And right. he, he's holding this position of, look, this is just common sense. His whole dialogue with Staros, uh, the, yeah. the Koteas character. See, in the yeah. film, Koteas, he's, he's in the commander, but he doesn't want to just have his men die needlessly. Whereas Nick Nolte says, you know, this is the mission. If we fail at this, a lot more people are going to die. So we have to accomplish this. So he's coming from a different place. But there was the point where he was really obviously angry or disappointed or both with Staros and his decisions. Staros had disobeyed. And he's trying to explain it to him, though. He, he doesn't just say, you're fired. He says, look at those creepers. Look at those vines over there. Nature's cruel, Staros. You have to get it. It's not the way. It's not like lily white, you know, it's not gloves. It's not a tea service. This is reality, you know, and he's trying to bring that 
Adish realism to him. And he doesn't punish him, even though he disobeyed. He, In fact, he recommends him for a medal, which is partially, I think, to save the reputation of the company so there's not a scandal. The military doesn't need scandals. So it's very practical that way. But I think in his heart of hearts, he did understand why Staros did what he did. He was not a brick. You know, he was a human being with a heart given a kind of impossible task. Yeah. There was also the scene where... Um when they were um that when they were on leave for that week and yeah. Nick Nolte is watching them and then starts to to weep right that again struck me as very eightish right uh in, yeah. in that way uh when there's this finally this moment where they can let their guard down and experience what they're truly experiencing that was portrayed very well there yeah yeah he it was safe to feel everything he was feeling yes. in that moment yeah. yeah. And, and, and again, there were, there were only a couple of things, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, when I mentioned that were they sixes or eights in my mind, there were only a few things that could have pointed towards six in some way, particularly the, the, the first scene with Lieutenant, uh, uh Colonel uh, Tall, where he's, you know, having to eat the crap that the plate of crap that John Travolta's feeding him, you know, and he's having this inner monologue. But uh, I, I would agree oh, yes. it was more of an eightish character. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one -on -one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And... If you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjangracia.com. Uh, any other any type characters that we'll, uh, we want to talk about? How about Staros? <laughs> Staros. Oh, that's a good one. What are your thoughts, TJ? Uh, I was t I, for me, it was a toss-up between six and nine. And ultimately, I landed more on nine in that he resists very quietly and respectfully he doesn't have any of the kind of flash. And it was interesting, Russ, to hear you describe the final scene between him and Colonel Tall, because I saw it very differently. I saw it, Tall was punishing him by removing him from the regiment, by saying, you're not going to share in the further glory of this mission. I'm going, I'm dooming you to obscurity. You're going to go back to a desk in Washington, which on the one hand, you will be completely safe. On the other hand, you won't be written into the tale of glory that was this campaign. I will. And again, he takes that very quietly and respectfully. He doesn't tell him off. He doesn't get jittery at all. He doesn't seem to have any anxiety about that. He just accepts it and has a final conversation with the fellow soldiers and lays it out and speaks very respectfully of everyone. And a big part of his character is maintaining his composure in the middle of the chaos of the battlefield in one of the most chaotic and horrific battles there was in World War II. Yeah, I think also, though, the, the reason I read it as a compassionate response, a lot of times in wartime, a disobedience like that is firing squad, execution, prison. Or loss of rank. He, yeah, loss of rank. 
And he didn't do any of that. He did want to get him out of there. I think also, the other reason I think he wanted him out of there, this is, again, would be cut from an eight motivation and a kind of shrewdness. He didn't want his attitude to infect the company. He didn't want that sensibility. He wanted those men hard, ready to die, ready to kill. He didn't want them with it. He, he was trying to tell them that kind of heart you have doesn't belong here. You can't be that and be here. And, and so that, that, that was a kind of a weird, you know, kind of fixated eight way of, of being kind in a strange way. Um, but I, I, I do see your point. And I totally agree with what you're saying about Staro's respect for the whole situation for the men and how quietly he kind of accepted all of it. It was, it was a rather important note in the, in the music of this film. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Staros, another Christian illusion with the dark night of the soul, uh, praying by the candlelight, uh, you know, much like Jesus did uh, in, in the garden. And, um, you know, again, it was this, you know, do you hear me? Are you still there? Right. You, you know, uh, and um, this language of beseeching and, you know, I still have faith you know, can you show me a sign in some way, right? But uh, um, but not being adamant about that need for a sign. So it's a very interesting theme there. And um, the um, contrast between him and the John Cusack character was an interesting one because the Cusack character was exactly what Nolte was looking for. And and I got to say, as I rewatched this, even though it was such a small role for John Cusack, I thought it was one of his best performances, man. I mean, it was I great thought, in this movie. you know, he I just, believed he was that guy. It, absolutely right. I mean, Kuzak is a classic seven, you know, in almost every movie that he's in. And, um, you know, but he was just still and firm and grounded, um, really, really good. Uh, held his own with Nick Nolte. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do by just standing there, right, and looking at him. And uh, really, really good. Uh, other thoughts on that character? Well, just which type energy do you see him having? I saw him as a three. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, pretty healthy, grounded three. He was effective, efficient, competency. This is the mission. I'll do it. Not only that, I will kick butt doing it. And just you could see he was, um, it's not overt in the film, but he has ambitions within the military. He wants to follow the path of Tall, of, of Nick Nolte. He wants to be, you know, important within this. And he knows what he has to do to do that. And he does it. So, and, and just his collectedness was also struck me as more three. I mean, you don't have a lot of clues to go on here. So it's just an impression. Right. Yeah. But but it, yeah. if, I was, if I was asked to say which one, that would be my first guess. That's, that was my impression as well, um, again, with very little to go on. But there was just this, uh, a very healthy three, for sure. Yeah. The critical scene for me was the scene when it's him and Nick Nolte's character. And Nolte, they've taken the hill, and Nick Nolte's excited and wants everybody to press on. And he very effectively gets the message across that without water, we're nothing. Yeah. And he's quiet, and he's respectful. And Nick Nolte's full of bluster and excitement. And really has a lot of his own ambition in mind as well of like, he wants this mission to succeed because it'll reflect well on him and he's not in the line of fire, but other men are, but they're my instruments. And then there's John Cusack just 
reminding him consistently about the water. And it's interesting. I hadn't thought of three, but it's interesting to think of him as that of like knowing exactly how to make my way through this thorny situation and say the exact thing in the right tone that still has the respect and deference to the chain of command and gets the message across. Yeah. When we talk about threes being diplomatic, right? People can just understand that in a, in a very limited way, even a, a, a pejorative way sometimes, but it's not that it's, it's knowing how to communicate into the situation that you find yourself in. It's a kind of attunement really. Okay, uh, so let's now talk about um, the, 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 what I'll call the higher level themes here, right? So uh, again, we've talked about personality types, but personality types is often the least interesting thing about the Enneagram, right? Uh, it's uh, about these themes happening at a higher level that uh, affect us all. And, you know, when, when we do trainings, we always talk about how the Enneagram is an interpersonal model, right? These nine kinds of people, but also it's an intrapersonal model uh, depicting these nine things that are happening within each one of us. And I think those were really on display in this. Russ, you've talked about point nine already and referred to that. Say more about how the sort of higher aspects of point nine are reflected in this film. Yeah, well, the, the kind of, uh, what shall I say, the spiritual punchline of point nine is the general spiritual punchline of all mystical traditions, which is that in the bottom, most fundamental level of whatever our human consciousness is, is an experience of unity. And the, the thing that's kind of mind-blowing, which the Enneagram addresses in the symbol itself, is the circle, meaning the unity, and the triangle. The triangle is teaching us that you don't just go straight from what you're identified with to some kind of unity. That doesn't happen. The unity is realized through the recognition of and holding the contradictions and polarities of the world, which is the nine journey. You can't run away from those. You can't hide from them. You can only create a false unity, which is some kind of dissociated state that you get identified with. But that's the, this film was showing wit, particularly, as we said. At first, doing that is literally running away, literally going AWOL. You know, all nines, in some sense, there, there's that desire to go AWOL, to get away from all the ridiculous, stupid things that human beings do to each other. Even if I don't get out of my seat, I'm going to go AWOL. That's right. Uh, you, you guys are talking nonsense. I'm sitting here thinking about my next, next fishing trip, right? You know, it's whatever. But I think there's... What he learns is how to embrace the raw realities as he's in these battle scenes and there for his buddies and seeing nature, even while all the caca is hitting the fan, he's having a deeper journey. He was already sort of inclined toward a sort of spirituality at the beginning, but he wasn't there yet. But through the process of him actually being there, showing up, participating, being in the mess of the whole thing, he starts to realize, let's say, the true unity. In other words, the Enneagram is telling us the real unity includes the conflicts, includes the contradictions, includes the ego and the personality. It's not leaving that stuff behind. It's embracing all of it. And in that embrace, you come to something that our positional views cannot realize, but that sometimes... it. It's like that deeper reality winks at us. And this film is full of winks. 
there's so many moments which are, aren't even necessarily showing people. But like I said, the sun coming down through the trees, the exotic bird, that crocodile or alligator going into the water at the beginning, all these scenes of nature, which aren't just pretty scenes. They're just showing us there's another, there's another river that's flowing underneath the one that we're paying attention to. It's always here in some sense. The imminence, the imminence of the transcendent is what I would say this film is about in some way. And so that's very nine. There's the other thing, and as I said, the working out of the conflict, you know, the, the nine is conflict avoidant until they see that that will never bring them peace. That will never bring them unity. So, you know, there's that theme runs through, there are other themes too, but I think that was one of, when I first saw it, that was my first big takeaway. Like, wow, wow, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, you know, for me, completely agree with everything you, you said there and uh, would would add that, and you might have touched on this already, but it's this sort of stepping back and integrating of the polarities, right? You already talked about the law of three and, and how that um, is, is demonstrated there. There's also this concept of benevolence. Um, you know, for me, one of the things I see at the heart of the nine is this wounded sense of benevolence that they need to recapture, right? This good intention. And uh, when that becomes wounded in the young nine, the um, it turns into this false sort of self-sacrificing for others, right? Of, well, I'll just stay out of the way and not get into conflict so you you will be happy right and so i won't be i'll, I'll stay in this bad marriage or this bad job just because i don't want to hurt you or upset you exactly yeah. right right so uh you know i i, re I remember a, a nine that you and i both know from way back uh russ who said that his mother told him once that he he was her favorite child of five because she could leave him on the living room floor and he would play with his feet for hours Right. So I love you because you don't bother me. Right. Is kind of the message that nines get. And what they start to recapture is this sense of good intention or goodwill toward others. Right. This truly loving generosity that uh, goes out to others, this real sacrifice when needed. But just this this you know, kind of overwhelming kindness uh, that can come through. There's also an element of generativity, right? Uh, we talk about generativity as a uh, kind of an accelerating practice uh, for nines, this taking an interest in others, grooming, mentoring, nurturing for no real reason. And I think we see a lot of that in wit as well throughout this movie. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. The one other thing, theme I'd say that, and, you know, I hadn't really thought of it prior to this is that this film is as close as any film I can think of in showing what the holy ideas are. Say more. All right. Like, well, transparency, which is for my point five, is seeing the transcendent while you're seeing the imminent. The physical world is there doing whatever it's doing, but there is this something else that's coming through it. Like the idea of epiphany, something shining through. And literally, that's what he was showing, a kind of epiphanic light appearing in the midst of a terrible battle. You know, that's kind of holy transparency. It's, it's recognizing there is this other deeper realm of silence, stillness, profundity that is here in our human experience. And you look at that in a religious perspective, but you sure don't have to. It's a human experience. In the same way, holy love is the nine, and that's the benevolence 
that you were speaking about. It doesn't mean anything that we think of as love. I, I always try to explain to my students, the holy love is the radical neutrality of the heart. And in a sense, nature and the light and the holding of all of it is not voting, not playing favorites, not saying these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. It's this, and that's the nine, this radical holding of everything, which is what wit comes to, where he ends up at the end. And it isn't just, that's not like some spaced out spiritual state. It's not some hypnotic trance. It's, it's a different way of perceiving the moment that you're in, which is the revelation of this, this benevolence that is not a reward or a punishment and that there's nothing you can do to get, which is also like the Christian idea of grace. And, and yeah, to go back to what you were saying about Malik earlier. Yeah, so, so, so that's great stuff. And, uh, and this is one of the things I loved about this movie was this non-judgmentalism that you're talking about, right? The, you know, the, the crocodile or alligator or whatever it was, was not evil. It's no, it's just a creature. It's just a creature. <laughs> and these, you know, these two warring groups of people were, you know, of course there was some demonization of the enemy and so forth, but not really. And it was almost as if it was taking the perspective of these may as well be two ant colonies fighting against each other for all the moral impact it has on the planet, right? It just, it just is. It's just the way nature works. And, and this is an interesting theme we see in Malick's work. Again, if we go to Tree of Life, where all of a sudden you get these dinosaurs, you know, there and, you know, one of them stepping on its prey's head. And uh, again, it's not, you're not demonizing the dinosaurs. It's not like it's Jurassic Park or something that's the enemy or you got to fight against, but it's just, this is how it is, right? This is, you know, step away from the judgment because the judgment keeps us separated, right? But once we let go of the judgment, then we can find unity again. Go ahead, Russ. Yeah, there, there's a, you know, we, we know, I don't know if people are aware of this, but Terrence Malick, lest you think we're reading too much into this film, he, got, he graduated summa cum laude from Harvard with a degree in philosophy. He was an yes. expert in Heidegger. Yes. Uh, he went to um, Oxford and was going to get his PhD there, but he got into big arguments with his, uh, his supervisors and left. But he's a man... This is what you have to kind of get where he's coming from. He's a man raised in a Christian sensibility. He went to an Episcopal school, and he has that. But at the same time, he is a philosopher. So that means he asks questions. He thinks about this. What does this really mean? He's not somebody who can just believe something because somebody told him that. It's not in his makeup. So you see him struggling with this question. How does suffering come into the world? That's in tree of life it's in it's in this film there's that wonderful uh voiceover during the battle the but you're hearing this swelling gorgeous music hans zimmer perhaps his greatest uh score is right up there with his best and and you're it's you're seeing these soldiers dying and fighting and this voiceover who's killing us what is this this war in the heart of of nature and he's, it's sort of this recognition that nobody's deciding this exactly. It's just this how things are. And so in, in like in the Tree of Life, he's showing the creation of the universe and everything seems harmonious and gorgeous. And then suffering comes in. 
this and blood. It shows blood and uh, and predation and animals attacking each other. But then the other side of it, of Tree of Life, that is very much parallel to what Wit does in this movie, that dinosaur that steps on the head of the other dinosaur lets it go. And it's something about, and this is the, again, very anagrammatic, what wins, our raw instinctual impulse, or does something else arise in our heart? He shows it in a dinosaur <laughs> in Tree of Life, where this dinosaur, for unknown reasons, has some other impulse and doesn't kill this other dinosaur that's totally set up for evisceration. In the same way, Wit is on this journey where he could many times have gone down different roads, but some other impulse guides him. And I think Malik is trying to sort of zero in on what is that impulse? What is it that saves us? What is it that makes sense of all this suffering and conflict and difficulty in the world of war even? I, I happen to have typed out that uh, voiceover that you mentioned, Russ, and I'm going to read it. Um, this great evil, where did it come from? How did it steal into the world? What seed, what root did it grow from? Who's doing this? Who's killing us, robbing us of life and light, mocking us with the sight of what we might have known? Does our ruin benefit the earth? Does it help the grass to grow and the sun to shine? Is this darkness in you too? Have you passed through this night? And so, again, it's that those very themes that you're talking about. Yeah. Why and again, is it this idea that you, you cannot get there by avoiding that. You have to go through it. Exactly Very integratic. Right. <laughs> no spiritual bypass in this film. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And, and I'm glad you pointed out, Russ, that uh, uh, Malik's bona fides, because, uh, you know, we, we could otherwise be accused of reading too deeply into this. But I, we're probably not reading deeply enough, uh, you know, quite frankly. But um, so I, I also think that there was a lot of point six stuff as well and point three stuff that I'll come back to, but the point six stuff. So this movie was um, riven with fear, right? There's that great scene where they're walking through the tall grass and every so often one of them would sort of duck down and then they'd all duck down, right? And then they'd pop back up again. And there was, you know, so you could just feel the fear that people were experiencing, you know, quite justifiably. Um, and, and this transitioning of fear into courage that we see in so many characters, particularly, I forget his name in the movie, the red-haired guy who stole the forty-five, oh, yeah, yeah. who I always think of Bunchy from uh, from uh, Ray Donovan, uh, the, the yeah, actor. Yeah. I think his name is uh, Dash uh, uh, Myhook or something like that. Um, but there's that moment in that battle scene where he is just absolutely terrified and you can see him stealing himself up, right? Gaining this courage. And I think there's a lot of that in this movie. What's also interesting and very six-ish is that Malik plays you with you with this stuff. When they land on the beach and they're out and they're already, there, there's no enemy waiting for them. There's nothing. And, and after you've seen Saving Private Ryan, <laughs> yeah, right. you're different. sitting there kind of <laughs> watching it like this, going, oh, God, this is going to be awful again. And nothing happens, but they're still on edge. Because nothing happened, the courage shows up when they're in the real situation, that when they're actually in the calm, some other force rises in them. Right. Finally, point three, 
um, for me, one of the things at point three is this sense of inherent value, right? This idea that we all have inherent value. Every life is precious. Every life uh, should be treated with equal value. And as we know, that's not what happens in life, right? I mean, some people are some people are privates and some people are generals, right? And they're treated differently. And uh, some people feel like they have to earn um, this. So, so I think this movie was trying to remind us of the value of life that particularly those lives that it might be really easy to devalue. Yes. The other thing was that, in my mind, sort of ties to point three, is this ability of life to flourish under the most challenging circumstances, right? Uh, you know, I'm always, I, I love when, when, whenever I get to the desert, and it's not all that hap- often, but when I'm in a, the desert or some remote place, I'm always fascinated when I see amongst the rocks this little flower or tree or branch or weed or something growing in a clump of dirt that just happened to gather there, right? And we see this in a lot of places where there's just this, you know, life finds a way that strikes me as kind of three-ish, this, this striving to be something, right? And for me, that's really captured in the final shot of this movie, which is one of my all-time favorite shots of just that coconut laying on the beach yeah. right in the water yeah at the end right with with that with the with the the tree growing out of it right it's clearly a you know the coconut seed turning into a tree uh for me that just represented so we start the movie with the crocodile representing death and then we end it with the coconut growing into life which obviously represents life a tree of life you might say well there we go tj wow what a great reach back all, all right. these connections <laughs> wow i hadn't thought no, but I, I absolutely that's that's part of it that flourishing there's it, it makes me think of you know i a broadway show i've really liked in the last few years 80s down and it ends with a little song i think i can pull up the words just short couplet it goes uh the, at the very end the cast, come, the whole crew comes out and they raise these glasses and sing this little song with just a guitar. And the, the realm part is, some birds sing when the sun shines bright. Our praise is not for them, but the ones who sing in the dead of night. We raise our cups to them. Uh, some flowers bloom where the green grass grows. Our praise is not for them, but the ones who bloom in the bitter snow. We raise our cups to them. Hmm. And there's something here, again, this is the part of the Enneagram that people are just not super crazy about, but it's this idea that we're transformed and we flourish through embracing and meeting our suffering and being realistic and honest and contactful with our challenges, what's difficult for us. I mean, you know, yeah, we, we all need a lot of encouragement. We all need to know there's something good about us, thank God. Uh, but we don't, that alone doesn't do anything if we're not using that to meet what is challenging and difficult. I mean, the Enneagram is nothing if not trying to help us be that coconut. You know, we're, we're, we, we've got all these things against us, including our own crazy minds and emotional reactions. But there's something, the whole theme of that, something doesn't give up. And, and somehow something can blossom in us despite whatever may have been our journey hitherto. Yeah, yeah. 
Great. All right. So, uh, TJ and TJ, any thoughts that uh, uh, you'd like to, to share at this point? Yeah, I mentioned earlier some forest themes. So just to expand on that a little bit, there's the depth of every single character whose inner life we hear, which is many of them, far more than most movies. It's quite unusual for a movie to have voiceover from more than one character. Right. Much less to find out what's happening in the hearts of all these characters, including at one scene, I can't remember the character's name, but a, one soldier just shot a Japanese character. And on the outside, he's elated. He's excited to have done it. And on the inside, he's thinking, I just took a man's life. The worst yes. thing you can do to someone worse than rape and no one can do anything to me. So this, there's layers behind the surface with everyone. And another thing is that the movie is incredibly visually beautiful throughout. It's an, and then the music, as you mentioned, is also quite powerful and emotionally affecting. And the movie overall has a feeling of tremendous sadness. And I found myself even in the battle scenes, which in many war movies are supposed to be either exciting or horrifying or both. In this movie, the battle scenes were horrifying and on some level exciting, but tremendously sad. I just felt this huge sorrow as I was watching it for everyone in the scene, for for the lives that didn't get to be lived, for the chaos and destruction that's ultimately needless. I think it's a very four-ish take on a war movie. Can I just comment on that, uh, TJ? Because I, I think you make a good point, and we haven't touched on it yet. Um, I, I completely agree about the battle scenes, particularly that one where they go into the Japanese camp. And and I, I just, every time I see that, I just, if I'm not crying, I'm on the verge of tears, right? I mean, it's just, and and, and because you feel this this heartbreak, Right. Um, not the exhilaration of, you know, yeah, we're going to kill those Japs or, you know, anything like that. It's just, the, you know, it's this uh, oh, just th this is so heartbreaking. No other word for it. Um, and the artistic quality. I mean, uh, there's this great video on YouTube of different actors who have worked with Terrence Malick sitting around talking about the experience, right, and how frustrated they could be. For example, uh, I think it's Christopher Plumas who, Plummer who says, I would never work with him again, right? I mean, just there's no way I'm going to do that. Uh, Adrian Brody hates him. But even others were saying, you know, we'd be in the middle of filming this action scene, and all of a sudden we look over and he's pointing the camera up at some birds in a tree, right? And, you know, and, and so, you know, very much this four-ish thing. Uh, although I do get the sense reading about Malik that he might be a five, right? I mean, uh, I don't know because there's almost, there's no interviews with him. There's only a handful of pictures, but you cannot find an interview with Terrence Malik and he refuses to be photographed. So uh, don't really know, but uh, I, I would agree a lot of four-ishness in this. It's quite astounding that a person like that has had a career in Hollywood making movies. But on the other hand, and, and perhaps in, uh, in support of the, the five theory, uh, not many movie directors take 20-year hiatuses. <laughs> this is true. Exactly right. You, you get the same thing with Kubrick. He never made a movie, till he, and then he worked on them longer than anybody else, yes. and he would not be rushed. Yes. <laughs> Which was another thing with this movie, right? It was uh, it took forever in the editing. It with the original version was over five hours long, and they ended up cutting it down. There was no real working script. There was just I'm going to film a bunch of stuff and put it together in the editing. So. Yeah, yeah. When there was a certain degree of that with Days of Heaven too, it was took a long time to edit it. And in fact, this is a fun thing I learned researching for this is that. 
when they looked at all they had for Days of Heaven, they realized it didn't hold together, which is when he got the idea to do voiceovers, which are in Days of Heaven. Uh, but then him seeing that that was a legitimate kind of device to bring the different elements he was putting into the, the film to make them more coherent and cohesive. It's hard to imagine Thin Red Line without those voiceovers. Oh, no. It, it, yeah, well, for sure, for sure. Uh, T.J. Doll, you were going to say some other things before I interrupted you. Yeah, um, I also see a lot of high-level eight themes in this movie in terms of the theme of vitality. The opening shot, as we've mentioned, is the crocodile or alligator lowering itself into the water. And there's a lot of individual shots throughout the movie. I don't know that there's a single scene that doesn't have it where we randomly see bird or a wombat or some creature of nature to me, implying the just the eternal order of life and how that crocodile isn't inherently bad, as we've said. It is a predator, but that is its nature to do. And Russ, something that was in the wisdom of the Enneagram in terms of the high levels of eight is this respect for the natural order of things. This enjoyment, this appreciation of a fish acting like a fish, a cat being a cat, a bird being a bird, even as the cat stalks the bird. It is the natural order of things. And we can see that we're a part of that at those higher levels. And eights that are so much about vitality can see that I'm a part of this. And then hand in hand with that, especially in this movie, is just how precious life is and how tremendously sad it is when it's taken away, especially when it's taken away wastefully. And we see that in the scene with Woody Harrelson's character. He reprimands himself for making an amateur's mistake by accidentally pulling the pin on his grenade when he didn't realize it, has, having to lie down on it and it blows up his butt as he sacrifices himself for his fellow soldiers. He's furious with himself because it's just such a horrific waste of life. You know, his, his death did not advance the cause. It's just an accident. It was a stupid accident. And you could say that about World War II altogether, about human conflict altogether, is this bloodbath didn't need to happen. These two anthills did not need to go to war, but they are. And here it is. And look at what we have wrought. And wouldn't it be better if we could just participate in the stream of life? You know, as you say that, what, one thing that occurs to me too, one could get the idea with, you know, wit's martyrdom at the end, that there's something, there's something about a devaluing of life. But I take exactly the opposite sense from this film. There's few films I've seen that are more of an, a celebration isn't exactly the right word, but an affirmation of our life, of our existence, of that you're going to find the transcendent in the details of life. And, and that, and that's scene that you described is really very much, yeah, I, I completely agree. This isn't saying like we're better off in some transcendent state. You're saying this is, this life is, is precious and amazing and an opportunity. And that opportunity is also part of the three. Like, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do with this time? With Here's what's going on. What are you going to do? Uh, Russ, uh, at the beginning of the podcast, you made a comment about this movie kind of being something to watch for people who don't like war movies and would not uh, you know, otherwise watch them. And uh, uh, for me, um, it, it reminded me of something that when I went to see Saving Private Ryan years ago in the theater, I took my uh, youngest brother and a friend of his, and they were about 12 or 13 at the time. Um, it was a big age difference between us. And coming out of the theater, one of them said, 
wow, I hope I never have to go to war, right? Whereas so many people's, so many movies glorify war and like, you know, Top Gun, the first one, right? What happened after Top Gun? People started enlisting, right? And, you know, that didn't happen after Saving Private Ryan, and it certainly would not happen after this. But I, I also wouldn't call this necessarily an anti-war movie. You know, again, it was a, a war's just a thing sometimes. Um, but it, it gives an appreciation. And I, you know, my, my father grew up in Europe during World War One. I'm sorry, World War Two, and, you know, lived in refugee camps and saw the, you know, the effects of war firsthand. And so I grew up hearing stories about his experiences and always was pretty contemptible uh, uh, about anybody who would, uh, or I held in high contempt anybody who would glorify war, and I remember the, the you know, the build up to the Second Gulf War, um, you know, back in the early two thousands, and having conversations with people who were just, yeah, we're gonna go, we're gonna get them, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that, and just remember how disgusted I felt with that whole mindset of, you know, eagerly rushing into war. And I think this movie is kind of an antidote to that, right? It's a reminder to people of our humanity and the humanity of people we might see as enemies otherwise. Yeah, I'd love to find out more about Terrence Malick's dad. It's a very interesting story. Hmm. Terrence Malick's dad is uh, ethnically Lebanese and Assyrian. Hmm. Assyrians, just northeastern Iraq, northwestern Iran, and he was born in that region. Terrence Malick's dad was born like about 150 miles away from where Gurdjieff was born. Mm. And let's just say there was a lot of strife in that part of the world in the last century or two um, with the, the Russians and the Turks and the Iranians. And then the, you know, just a, so I just, and, and yet in this region, you don't necessarily associate Christianity with that region. His father was really Christian, and so there's there's some kind of family background narrative, family soul kind of thing that I think is coming through Terrence Malick. I just would love to know more about that, but I think his father and his father's journey is also very much in his films. Mm, interesting. Yeah. There was also an interesting story about his brother being a musician who studied mm. guitar with... Um, uh, Segovia. Segovia. And yeah. uh, the pressure of being a musician got to him so bad that he purposely damaged his hands uh, so that he couldn't play anymore. And then they think later that he committed suicide. So, um, yeah. I think that's played out in a certain way entry of life. The mm -hmm. younger brother who yes, takes his yeah. life. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Very good. Yeah. And there's something very autobiographical about that film with yes. just enough distance to make it not a confession or, or a diary, but an exploration of themes. You know, that's that's a big thing yeah. to go through in your life, have a sibling you know, lose yeah. their life that way. All right, great. So um, so I guess, guys, this is kind of bringing us to the end. TJ and TJ, I'm going to ask you uh, any uh, final thoughts that you want to put in before we wrap up? Uh, no, I think you guys said all the good things already. <laughs> yeah, I you agree had all with this what... written down, didn't you? You were going to say oh, it just yeah. verbatim, and yeah, then you yeah, just yeah. stole my thunder. Yeah. No, I agree with what TJ was saying about some forge kind of themes. The first time I watched it, I was trying to decide if I thought Wit 
had some four stuff going on because a lot of this, the feeling and affect from him honestly feels a lot like my wife, who's a four mm -hmm. and just sort of this acceptance of the reality of what's going on and a deep empathy with humanity, sort of a closeness to death, not in even in a dark morose kind of way, just a, just a transcendent acceptance of the reality of death. Um, so I agree with all, you know, everything that you guys have said, uh, the eight ish kind of stuff between, um, I, I kind of saw Sean Penn and Nick Nolte as almost like opposite ends of the eight, sort of uh, very healthy and very unhealthy in some ways. Um, it's interesting, you know, Russ, one of the things I think at level one for type eight says something about may achieve historical greatness or something like that. And it was interesting when Sean Penn runs out to save the soldier he realizes he's unsavable, so he gives him the morphine and runs back. And then one, I forget who the superior was, but says, "I'm gonna. That's the bravest thing I've ever seen. I'm gonna recommend you for all these medals." And he says, "If you recommend me for anything or mention my name, I'm gonna get out of here. Like, don't you dare do that." He doesn't want the recognition or the greatness. It's more just about um, the man and the mission. And and uh, yeah, I agree about all the transcendent stuff. It's a it's a very profound film. I don't know exactly. I don't think I even fully understand all the ways it's profound, but it, it's definitely <laughs> profound. All right. All right. Great. TJ Daw. One of my favorite shots in the whole movie is when the army's advancing and an old man, an Islander is walking the other way as if this is no different a day than any other day for him. Yes. And that fits right in with the different shots of the animals or the plants and the ocean. And it brought to mind something I've heard, which is that, this possibly happened at some point in human history. It could happen to us again, is if there's some kind of cataclysm and humanity is reduced to a number as small as 250 people, the species would eventually survive and repopulate the earth. And that got me thinking that watching that scene, there's that one shot of that old man walking through of just the eternity of life and how if we fuck up this beautiful blue globe that we live on as badly as we seem to be determined to do, Pockets of us will survive, surviving in ways that they have from time immemorial and come back. And all of our glory and all of our strivings and all of our beauty and all of that will be washed away in the sands of time. Uh, what keeps coming back to me as I ponder this film is this reconciling of these different levels of reality. You know, like the, the scene you just mentioned, TJ, of that man walk. What we don't seem to get, and I think what the Enneagram is always trying to show us, and you know, one could debate Gurdjieff's terminology, but what he was pointing to is there are laws of nature, scientific laws, laws of how our consciousness operates all the time, and our attention's on something else. And we miss it. We miss the whole show. We miss our life. We miss everything that's mind-blowing and astonishing about this existence. This film brings us back to that again and again. And again, and in some sense, our craziness is derived from elements of nature, so to speak. But you can also see that they're kind of a weird distortion of nature at the same time. And again, this law of three thing, you don't have to come down on one side of that argument or the other. There's a way of holding the, the contradiction, and then your consciousness can open to another perspective on what the whole thing is. But I just think it's about this journey of, you know, how to be in the world, but not of it. You know, the, the old spiritual cliche, how do you participate heartfully, compassionately, courageously, no matter what life throws at you, 
could even be a battle, right? And, and maintain some sense of what you really are and what's really here. I think that's what he was aiming for in this film. And that is um, something I've always been fascinated yeah. with. And, and, and this is the beauty of art. I was thinking about, uh, again, the unavoidable comparison of um, the Thin Red Line and Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan's a great movie, right? This is a work of art, right? Uh, the Thin Red Line is a work of art. And like the greatest art, it gets us thinking in ways that are not just, you know, uh, entertainment or, you know, of the moment. But it leaves us with more questions than it does answers many times. And this movie certainly does that. So uh, if you have not seen dear listener, uh, The Thin Red Line. I highly encourage you to go out and watch this movie, take some time, and then watch it again. Uh, um, you will be better for the experience. Uh, we've been on quite a tear here on the Enneagram in a Movie um, podcast uh, with the philosophical themes. Last week was uh, Groundhog Day with uh, Maria Jose, and before that we did uh, uh, Shawshank Redemption with Susan and Clay from the Enneagram Prison Project. And we also did Fearless with uh, Reverend Yen Vuong. So um, getting into deep waters here recently uh, with the podcast. And, and Russ— You're in my favorite movies, too. Uh, you know, all great <laughs> stuff. And uh, so, Russ, we want to thank you, um, you know, uh, as always, for being with us. It's always a treat for us to have you here and uh, uh, to, to talk with you and to learn from you. Uh, again, we encourage people to go to RussHudson.com. Um, to, you know, see all the things that Russ has available. Um, you know, again, I've known Russ for a long, long time now, and we've, uh, you know, been together in lots of different places. And um, uh, <laughs> my mind always goes back to Chile, Russ. And uh, <laughs> I'll share Freaking this. Freaking out, Maria Jose. <laughs> so I'll share this story with you two guys, because I don't know if we told it before. But uh, so Russ and I were at a conference in uh, Santiago. This was about 2000. 10, 11, somewhere around there. And uh, so Maria Jose, who was with us last week, was our sort of chaperone one day, taking us from uh, Santiago up to Valparaiso. And she's very excited to be, you know, driving the uh, the gurus uh, up, you know, 90 minutes uh, in, in the car, thinking she's going to be treated with these pearls of wisdom and deep insights. And uh, instead, Russ and I spent the whole time talking about zombie movies and quoting Pulp Fiction. So, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, and she's never let us forget it. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, so that Russ, is the thank union of opposites. <laughs> there you go. At the higher levels, life contains philosophical pearls of wisdom and enthusiasm for zombies that's exactly yeah. right that's exactly right. And, and i will and i will go i will take a stand on the hill that pulp fiction is a very spiritual movie would completely agree would completely agree we'll have to have russ when we ever get around to doing pulp fiction or tarantino uh you know we'll have to have russ so all right again russ thank you and uh tj and tj as always it was great we'll see you next week Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.